Hey now, it's the 24th of March 2017 and this is the Room Now Week in Review. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com, uh, coming to you from Dallas today where we're going to tell you about the big news in rheumatology. At the top of the news, actually there's three big things that really stand out for me. The New England Journal has featured two articles about rheumatology, specifically a review of psoriatic arthritis and an article about pregabalin or Lyrica. There's also new treatment guidelines from the Sjogren's Foundation, but are they good enough? And lastly, there's an article about smoking that leads to poorer outcomes in patients undergoing arthroplasty. From our social feed this week, um, there's a New England Journal article that we uh, posted today, published yesterday, about pregabalin or Lyrica being ineffective in a randomized controlled trial of 209 patients with uh, either acute or chronic sciatica pain. It turns out that pregabalin was actually equal to placebo and didn't have much of an effect uh, either at eight weeks or at one year. And that, more interestingly, there was certainly a lot more um, uh, side effects and adverse events in those who were taking the Lyrica. Uh, again, there is probably a role for Lyrica in management of pain, but it's not always as good as we like it to be. Um, good news for Amgen, it's biosimilar called Amgevita, which is a biosimilar of adalimumab, has actually been approved by the EMA in the European Union for use in adults and children with inflammatory disorders like JIA and pediatric Crohn's and of course rheumatoid, psoriatic, spondyloarthritis, etc. Uh, so that's good news on the biosimilar front. There's an interesting small study of 23 HIV patients taken from four centers who were also taking HIV inhibitors. They reviewed whether or not they were at higher risk for serious infections. Turns out that they were not. Interesting in that, well, if you think TNF inhibitors cause infections, um, here's a high risk group, uh, and they were not shown to cause infections. Of course, there was a historic control here rather than active control, um, but it is nonetheless important, one, to show that you can use TNF inhibitors in HIV patients without any additional risk. Uh, and two, that um, they're safe in those patients without any risk of, uh, of um, serious infections. Uh, I don't know about you, but I came across some very disturbing little bit of information. It's been out there a long time, but I was unaware, and you should talk to your drug rep about this, but every time a drug rep hands you a reprint, you're being charged for it. It goes on your um, Sunshine Act reporting list, uh, and again, how much you're being charged for it, you should find out. Um, so is it worth it? Uh, it's up to you. You might be able to download it for free and not be um, look like uh, a standout on the Sunshine Act list. Uh, there's a, a, a very good study that was done by uh, Jeff Curtis and colleagues that looked at the protection offered by um, the Zoster vac vaccine uh, in patients with immune-mediated or uh, autoimmune diseases. In a very large cohort, again, this is claims data of 59,627 patients, they showed that in the first year there was 44% less events of herpes zoster and that uh, this lasted for as long and was significant for as long as five years, with the numbers being 23% less at five years. These numbers are about similar to that seen in the regular population where, again, 50% protection was conferred by um, the zoster vaccine in the general population. So good news for your patients who uh, have autoimmune disease and need that vaccine. A nice study looked at colored Doppler ultrasound in assessing uh, vascular changes in 79 patients with systemic sclerosis. 
they compared this to uh, normal nail hole campylaroscopy and other findings. They showed that abnormalities of colored Doppler ultrasound was associated in those who had high CRP levels, those who had a greater than 20 pack year smoking history, males, and those who had either digital pulp ulcers or digital pulp scars. Um, this could become a useful tool in the assessment and management of patients with microvascular disease like that seen in scleroderma. Uh, a small review of 46 patients uh, in India who were taking methotrexate and developed um, pancytopenia, I think is somewhat instructive. What they found in that population was that this did occur at a lo mean low dose of 10 milligrams per kilogram, I'm sorry, 10 milligrams per week, um, that the main onset symptoms were that of uh, severe mucositis and fever. And those that were at risk were those who had a low albumin, those who had renal failure, and more importantly, that amongst these uh, 46 patients, 13 died. So this is a highly um, deadly event uh, that can be avoided by monitoring renal function um, and, uh, and, and patients who are on the drug. Uh, a report from last week's uh, AAOS meeting shows that smoking cessation prior to um, a knee or hip arthroplasty um, actually improves outcomes. So those who are taking, uh, who, who are smoking prior to surgery actually had worse outcomes and more complications than those who actually had ceased. So uh, good instruction for your patients who are undergoing arthroplasty. Um, a small but interesting report looked at uh, the rare occurrence of inflammatory bowel disease occurring in systemic juvenile arthritis patients, Stills disease patients, and when it did was seen in this Israeli cohort of 81 patients, um, the three cases that were seen, very low number, were all unified in that they were taking interleukin-1 inhibitors. Uh, and again, that's generally not a part of the spectrum of disease seen in Stills disease. I, I, I know adults uh, very well, and I've seen many children with this, and IBD is not a common, it's a very rare event, and the question that, uh, of whether it might be associated with IL-1 inhibition is even more quizzical. If you look at the data on IL-1 and IBD, suggests that maybe IL-1 could be a useful therapy in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. So we'll look at the literature in the future and see if this crops up more, but I think it's an important report, especially for those of you who take care of patients with uh, systemic JIA or adult onset Stills disease. Um, a systematic review of uh, over 1,200 patients um, who were undergoing either hip or knee um, arthroplasty uh, um, and were under the age of 55 showed that with a 10-year follow-up, a very high degree of satisfaction and of 85% or more and only about 5% revision rate, suggesting that this may be a good po population to do surgery. Again, it's always been suggested that patients who need hip and knee replacement should wait until the last possible moment, until they're much older. These new arthroplasties have always been said to last 10 to 15 years, but in fact, they're really built to last 30 years when properly managed um, in, in the current uh, uh, system uh, that we take care of patients. So again, um, trying to persuade your patients who are under 55 to not have surgery it may not be a good idea because there's a significant degree of success there. Again, the longevity of the uh, implant would still be the issue, and the study wasn't long enough to answer that question. Um, rheumatic manifestations of the chikungunya virus was recently reviewed by uh, Cassie Calabrese in a nice article that uh, looks at the experience of um, infections followed in a French cohort uh, in what's called the rheumatochick study. That's right, rheumatochick. Um, 
sounds like um, either an all-female uh, rheumatology faculty or some sort of new um, study group that um, won't let me in. You know, um, women are taking over rheumatology. Uh, it, it's always been an old white guy disease, um, but the new numbers on people going into rheumatology, the younger generation, it's going to be 60% female in the next decade. Um, so I'm, I digress. This particular study actually looked at 307 patients and the cumulative experience that was seen there. Interestingly, the mean uh, number of joints seen at presentation was 6.5. So this is a polyarticular presentation that is symmetrical, um, and, and over 80% of them have persistence of symptoms going out several years. So again, uh, this is going to become, a, a, I think, a larger um, number in with time. A lot of these mosquito-borne infectious arthritis are cropping up. In addition to the Zika, Zika virus, we have this now, the chikungunya, um, being added to also dengue. But and again, chikungunya and Zika are going to be a big issue in the future. What we really don't know is how to best treat them. Right now, they're getting the best anti-inflammatory therapies that we usually would use for a symmetric chronic polyarthritis. But the outcomes of that is right now not known. Um, last week, the New England Journal published a review article from um, uh, Chris Richland and Daphne Gladman and Robert Colbert, who uh, did a really good article. You should take a look at it. Um, it. It gives out the numbers that we all should know that 30% of patients with psoriasis will likely develop psoriatic arthritis. The prevalence numbers are somewhere between 6 and 25 per 10,000, at least in the United States. They review the comorbidity issue, the, the use of the CASPAR criteria. Um, dactylitis uh, is seen in half the patients. Um, erosions develop in half the patients within the first two years. They also talk about uh, the childhood onset of psoriatic arthritis, where there's two types. The oligoarticular subset that is often has dactylitis and maybe ANA, ANA positive with a risk of uveitis, or the late onset group between ages 6 and 12 who have HLA-B27 and a related enthesopathy, um, dactylitis, enthesitis, nail changes, and some of them go on to develop one of the forms of spondyloarthritis or the undifferentiated form. Nice, a really nice review of the etiology and pathogenesis that's definitely worth the read. Um, I, I found a nice article this week in, uh, in the American Journal of, of Medical Sciences that uh, reviews lupo, lupus hepatitis and lupoid hepatitis. Um, there's maybe some confusion between the two, but lupus hepatitis is the development of transaminitis and um, hepatitis in patients with lupus, whereas lupoid hepatitis was described in 1959 uh, and is the same thing as uh, what we now call autoimmune hepatitis. Um, they both are unified in the fact that they are associated with ANA positivity and hypergammaglobulinemia um, and a response and need to, for immunosuppressive therapy and steroids. Um, but they can be distinguished from each other. Um, you know, up to half of patients will have some kind of liver abnormalities uh, with their lupus, and transaminitis is seen in a quarter of patients with lupus. Uh, on the other hand, autoimmune hepatitis, um, nearly a quarter of those patients meet criteria for lupus. So again, there can be some confusion. In the review article, I think the main standouts um, as far as distinguishing between the two could be that in lupus, you obviously develop low complements and anti-ribosomal P antibodies, and you generally don't see that in autoimmune hepatitis or lupoid hepatitis. On the other hand, lupoid hepatitis, just like lupus, has a high degree of ANA positivity, but has different autoantibodies, including the um, anti-smooth muscle antibodies and the anti-LKM antibodies. So a nice review, probably worth taking a look at. Uh, also, a nice article from Len Calabrese and uh, Dr. Bingham uh, uh, in uh, ARD and also featured on Medscape, 
reviews a lot of the features that we see with the use of these new checkpoint inhibitors. These are drugs that target PD-1, such as um, pembrolizumab and uh, nivolumab, and then CTLA-4, and that's ipilimumab. Um, these are used for skin cancer, melanoma, solid tumors. Again, very popular agents these days, even being advertised on television, but they have been associated with autoimmune and inflammatory phenomenon. Um, this, uh, uh, Bing is going to do. Bing Bingham is going to do a, a keynote address at the SOTA meeting, the state of the art meeting the ACR is having coming up in uh, or in April. You should look at that. We advertise that on our website. So he's going to review these findings of what you see many autoimmune things, uh, including thyroiditis and lymphoproliferative diseases and myasthenia gravis and hypophysitis. But the rheumatic disease manifestations include things like Sweet syndrome, uh, Stevens Johnson. Um, colitis, uh, inflammatory arthritis, and sickle symptoms are really quite common. So uh, uh, you should also know that myositis and muscle involvement, even rhabdo, has been uh, reported. So again, looking for these findings in patients taking these specific um, chemotherapeutic drugs uh, should be um, um, something to consider uh, going forward. Um, lastly, there's a nice re uh, a new article about the Sjogren Syndrome Foundation uh, and its new 2017 treatment guidelines for Sjogren's Syndrome. Um, this is a, an article published by Steve Carsons and a number of experts in the field. Uh, I have to applaud them for coming out with this. It sort of puts on the map things for us to consider, especially when looking at the use of biologics in the management of the disease, looking at the treatment of fatigue, and also looking at the treatment of inflammatory musculoskeletal pain. Um, I think many of the guidelines they put forth, 19 recommendations specifically, are instructive, including saying that really there's no role for TNF inhibitors in the management of Sjogren's syndrome, that there might be a role of use of rituximab in really difficult Sjogren's syndrome patients, such as those with cryoglobulinemia and vasculitis, or vasculitis alone, severe parotid swelling, um, pulmonary disease, or peripheral neuropathies, and mononeuritis. But I think they're a little bit um, suspect, um, some of these guidelines, in my opinion, when it comes to for instance, recommending rituximab for the use of xerostomia. And again, they cite, although the, the, rec the committee recommended it, there's very weak evidence to support it. Um, also, they also suggest that hydroxychloroquine may be useful in treating the fatigue of Sjogren's syndrome, again, citing weak evidence. And then lastly, when talking about the treatment of inflammatory musculoskeletal pain, they go through the algorithm of using hydroxychloroquine first, then methotrexate, then both, and then if not that, using either leflunomide, sulfasalazine, azathioprine, or cyclosporine, all either moderate, which I find hard to believe, or weak evidence for those. So uh, while I like the guidelines and I like the discussion that they'll create, I think there needs to be more uh, discussion about this to know whether this is the way to go in managing your patients with Sjogren's. That's it for this week at roomnow.com. Be sure to go to the website to tune in um, for more news and information. Sign up, register, you'll get uh, daily good information from us. We'll give you Friday and, I'm sorry, Saturday and Sunday off. Um, but Monday through Friday, good news like this. You can go to the website and find the citations as well. That's it for this week. Enjoy your weekend.